Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Actually, I've got about two quarts of Benadryl and a fistful of Sudafed in me. So <laughs> I'm I'm dragging a little bit, and if I'm not my normal quick-witted self, you'll know why. Well, we appreciate you soldiering through for us. I, I feel like everybody got sick on the heels of WrestleMania. I've seen Hurricane Helms and everybody in between. Uh, say that they weren't feeling all that well. Sean Waltman and our buddy Dave Hancock. It's going around, man. It's the WrestleMania blues. And by the way, before we get into this, I just want all of our listeners to know that you are a fucking warrior. <laughs> to go from to go from the craziness of New York and all of the things that were going on there. And by the way, what did you do? Two or three live shows? I did three, yeah. Three live shows. The last one being at like midnight on Monday night and then to jump on a plane and fly to, well, originally Las Vegas, but spent a little time in, in LAX and having lost luggage and all the rest of that. And then to go to Las Vegas, which is exhausting in and of itself. Even if you're just going there for fun, um, hats off to you. You're a tougher man than I am. Well, I think you were on this crazy schedule once upon a time, and I guess it's my turn now. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to visit a crazy time for you. Let's get back to April 10th, 2000. And this is supposed to be the dawn of a new era in WCW. Of course, we're in Denver. There's 9,074 fans here. 6,027 of them paid a gate of 168 grand. But the real story is Vince Russo. He's been running things from a creative standpoint since October of 99. Of course, famously, you went home in September of 99. And, uh, a lot of people would think that maybe this wasn't the best time for WCW. There are a lot of people who believe that maybe Vince's creative was not exactly what WCW needed to tackle the WWF. And in his first month in power, I do want to mention this, the average attendance is 4,628 per show. And the nitro rating is around a 3.08. And that's the average. The Havoc, Halloween Havoc buy rate was 0.52. By January, so a few months later, attendance is 3,593. Ratings are a 3.1, and the average buy rate is down to 0.26. So the rating is up a T-tiny bit from a 3.08 to a 3.1. But there's 1,100 fans fewer, and uh, your buy rate is roughly half. So... Now, here we are, there's a bit of a, uh, a shift in, in power here. The, the concept of this show is to lead a new WCW with the return of a new, but old face to the company, Eric Bischoff, and he's going to join a returning Vince Russo. So sort of catch me up here. You know, when did you get the call? How did you get the call? You know that Ed Ferrara, you know that Vince Russo were there. You've been gone for a little while, but now the call comes in for you to come back to WCW. Sort of carry us through that process. Yeah, you know, it was it, it, it was kind of bizarre. I hadn't really been watching Nitro. I would drop in every once in a while for 20 minutes and just to kind of get a feel for what they were doing. Um, but, you know, my, my head just wasn't in wrestling. I had pretty much made up my mind that, it was time to move on to, to a new chapter in my life. 
So I, I wasn't really looking very closely at what Russo was doing. Now, I, I did have, you know, people like DDP and, and others who, that I talked to pretty regularly would, would call me and, and fill me in on what's going on or give me their opinions. So I had a general sense. But what was really interesting is uh, I, I was coming home from, you know, my home here in Wyoming was then a second home. And I had my own plane at the time. And I had flown my brother and sister and my wife. We'd come out to Wyoming for the Super Bowl just to watch it and hang out together and whatever. And I dropped my, my sister and my brother off in Minneapolis. And Lori and I decided to lay over uh, rather than fly on back to Atlanta. Uh, we decided to lay over in Minneapolis. We went out to dinner. We I think we ate at a Chili's or an Applebee's or some fast food chain like that, or not fast food, but some chain like that. And they had TVs all around. And I remember sitting there, I couldn't hear what was going on on, on Nitro or WWF at the time because they, I'm sorry, I said the, um, Nitro, I meant WWF. WWF was on. It was a Monday night. Raw was on. And while I couldn't hear anything, I could see what was going on. I wasn't paying too close attention, but out of the corner of my eye, I saw Eddie and, and Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn show up. And I said jokingly to my wife, Oh my God, the wheels are really falling off. I wouldn't be surprised if I get a call. And I said that jokingly because, you know, when 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 they they meaning the executive, you know, the management team at Turner Broadcasting opted to pay or play me, basically send me home with two and a half years on my contract. Um, that was a big decision for them, and it was a controversial one uh, at the highest levels. But that was the decision that they made, and they bought, you know, they brought Russo in because Bill Bush bought his bullshit, you know. And, and let me say this right off the bat: Vince Russo, for all of his faults, is probably can be one of the most charming people you'll ever meet, and he believes his own nonsense and his own bullshit. He, it's he actually does believe it. It's, it's a pathological kind of thing, I believe. So he was very convincing, and, and of course they they bought into the idea that you know Vince Russo was solely responsible for, you know the the resurgence of WWF, and that was all Vince Russo. And they bought into that, and they figured it out really quickly. Um, in fact, Vince, I think he lasted you know a month or two before he collapsed and had to go home. Um, and I got the call from Brad Siegel, it, coincidentally about a week after I got back from from Minneapolis, dropping my my brother and sister off and, and jokingly saying, I wouldn't be surprised if I get a call back. And I really was joking when I said that. And sure enough, Brad Siegel called me and Brad and I always had a, a pretty good relationship. Um, he called me and we made a little bit of small talk and he said, you know, what would it take for you to come back? And that's really how that conversation started. He was clearly not happy with Rousseau and he was in a bad spot because he had just signed him to a contract. He bought into the, uh, you know, Vince Russo story about, you know, him being solely responsible for turning WWF around, and he had egg all over him. You know, he had made a big decision to bring Russo in, and now he's calling me to try to fix it. So it was a, it was a very bizarre conversation. I do want to mention that Russo actually goes home in January, and that's when they start to do a bit of a, a committee. So. The same group of folks who were so excited about Russo coming in now want him out. This is according to the observer, but 
that list is like Bill Bush, Gary Juster, JJ Dillon, Kevin Sullivan. They're all fired up about Russo coming in as the savior just one month after you leave. But that's in October. By January, they've already decided, hey, we don't want to do anything with this guy. So at that point, Bill Bush decides to go with Kevin Sullivan, which is uh, what what Dave Meltzer would describe as a morale mistake. And we've talked about this before, but that, that decision is what leads to Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and all those guys jumping ship from WCW to the WWF. And allegedly, this this is almost like a pro wrestling storyline, when you get the call from Brad Siegel, eventually it comes up that maybe he puts together two unlikely performers and forms one creative tag team between you and Vince Russo. I think it was made official that you were hired on March 22nd. Uh, but chat me up when you have this conversation about when is that and how far into the talks does it come up that, Hey, what about trying to work with Russo? It was almost immediate in terms of working with Russo. Um, you know, my phone call with, with Brad was probably in February, end of January, early February. And, you know, once we started talking seriously about me coming back, you know, he brought up Russo and he said, do you think you can work with him? And I didn't know Russo. I had never worked with him before. I had, you know, previously had one conversation with him. It was a very short conversation about a year or two previous to that. Uh, Kevin Nash set it up. Kevin knew Russo from WWF and, and Russo's work on the magazine. And Kevin said, you know, do you want to talk to this guy? And I really wasn't interested. And this was before I left in September, obviously. I wasn't really interested, but out of courtesy, um, I said, sure, I'll talk to him. And I, I talked to him on the phone while he was still employed by WWF. And, you know, I wasn't impressed and I wasn't unimpressed. It was kind of a ambivalent type of a conversation. I didn't really feel one way or the other. Um, but that was the only conversation I had had with Rousseau. Um, and then when Brad said, do you, you think you can work with him? And at that point, I was in a pretty good position. I had two and a half years left on my deal. There was no way they could bring me back under my previous agreement because once you, you know, contractually, once you make a decision to pay or play somebody, you can't force them to come back under the terms of that agreement. So I knew that they would have to write me a new agreement. And I knew that they, for them to call me, for Brad to pick up the phone, and that's almost because of Brad. Like I said, Brad and I always had a pretty good relationship. But the people above Brad, for them to go, okay, Brad, call Eric back. Let's see if we can get him back. That was a really strong indicator to me that there were a lot of people, not just Bill Bush and Kevin Sullivan and J.J. Dillon, and those people didn't really matter in the big scheme of things. But for Brad to call me and and asked me to come back under the circumstances, um, I knew that there was a big problem there, and I knew I had a lot of leverage. But I didn't want to abuse it. You know, I made up my mind that, look, you know, if I can come back as a consultant, and it's one of the first things I told Brad, is that I, I, don't, I no longer wanted to be an employee of Turner Broadcasting because things were so, you know, it wasn't just with WCW. It was Turner Broadcasting as a whole was in a, just unbelievable disarray. Um, there's a great book written by an author by the name of uh, Nina Monk uh, called When Fools Rush In. And it's probably the best book I've ever come across that really gets into what happened 
with the Time Warner and then AOL merger and its overall impact, again, not just on WCW. WCW was a pimple on a pig's ass with regards to Turner Broadcasting. But the entire company was in disarray, and I knew that. And I had no desire to come back and be a part of it. So what I told Brad is, number one, yes, I can work with anybody. Now, as long as I trust them, I can work with them. I don't have to like them. We don't have to go out and have dinner, anything like that. I just need to know it's somebody that I can trust. And I said, I have no reason not to trust Vince Russo. So sure, I'll, I, I can work with him. I, I wanted to meet with him first. I wanted to spend a little time with him and try to get a read on him to see where his head was at. And Brad arranged that. And, and with that happened probably in mid-February. Uh, I met Russo you know, off-site. I didn't want to be seen with him at Turner Broadcasting because uh, I didn't want the rumor mill to start if indeed I decided I didn't want to work with him. Um, but, you know, I met with him and, you know, we chatted for a while. Like I said, he was, he was a charming guy. I was in a really strong position. I, I was no longer an employee. I was a consultant. They had to pay me out of my previous contract and write me a new one as a consultant. So I got a big chunk of cash and a new contract um, that included a three-picture deal with pay-or-play provisions in it. So I knew that was guaranteed money. And I, you know, Brad wanted me to come in and oversee creative and basically look over Vince because in Brad's own words, he's too dark and he doesn't understand storytelling. So I said, sure, I'll come in and I'll work with him because I felt like I could contribute. And I didn't have all the responsibilities that I previously had. And I had a pretty good chunk of cash in my bank account. So after I met with Russo, I called Brad back and said, sure, I, I can work with this guy. We, let's try to make it work. It was written in the Observer that Bill Bush apparently told Brad Siegel if Bischoff was brought back, he'd quit. And it's written, quote, Siegel apparently believed it as much as Bush believed Benoit when before being given the title, said he'd refuse to work if his career was in Sullivan's hands, and he hired Bischoff. He planned to keep Bush in charge of the business and of the company. Bush then quit resulting in Siegel having to work half days at the wrestling office until a successor could be found from outside. What do you remember about that? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I wasn't a part of any of those discussions. Obviously, I wasn't there. Um, you know, Bill Bush and I, it, it's really, you know, it's unfortunate looking back because I, I, I thought of Bill Bush as a, he was a confidant. You know, he had a direct line to a woman by the name of Vicki Miller, who is Turner Finance. Vicky was really um, pulling all of the, the, the financial strings at Turner Broadcasting. Again, not just WCW, but Turner Broadcasting as a whole. I believe she was on the Turner Broadcasting Executive Committee, so she was that far up the food chain. And Vicki Miller and Bill Bush had a, had a great relationship. And I, I relied on Bush because I'm not a finance guy. I never pretended I was one. I didn't try to be one. Uh, and Bill was good. He was really good, but it was instrumental in us, especially in around 90, 93, 94, when we were in a you know cost-cutting mode, because that's really what the first two years of, of my management was at WCW, was really just cutting every cost we possibly could. And Bill was really good at that. And he had a great relationship with Vicki Miller. So I relied on Bill a lot, and we became friends. He, he didn't live far from me. Um, it's not like we went out to dinner a lot or hung out on weekends or anything, but there were, you know, I, I threw Bill on my plane and, you know, he and I spent the weekend in Charleston, you know, South Carolina and, 
you know, we did spend some social time together, and I trusted him. Uh, I found out later that, you know, Bill was really the guy who, you know, I, I got let go on September 10th, 1999. On Thursday night, September 9th, I was pretty strung out, um, just beat up and frustrated. And I, you know, I, I talked to Bill, and it was late in the evening. It was like 7.30, 8 o'clock. We were still in the office. And I, I you know, I shared a lot of my feelings and frustrations with him. And I let him know that I was considering resigning. And Bill immediately took that to, I believe, I don't know this as a fact, but he immediately took that information to Vicki Miller, who I believe called Harvey Schiller. And Schiller called me into the office Monday morning and, and told me to take some time off. So I think Bill was probably very instrumental in that. And that's probably one of the reasons why, because he knew that I knew what was going on. And I'm sure he didn't want to face me. You know, he, he what he did was pretty, I don't want to say treasonous, but uh, it was pretty underhanded to, to share a private conversation like I was having with him and use that conversation to make a, a move, which is exactly what he did. And it worked for about a month. <laughs> And that's probably, I'm guessing, I don't know this is a fact. I've never talked to Bill subsequently, and I've never talked to anybody else about it. But that, that was my impression, and it, it makes a lot of sense why Bill didn't want to work with me, because he knew that I knew what he did. What do you remember about Bob Mould? Uh, allegedly, he quits the day that Russo was hired, feeling like his input is not valued. Uh, they talk him into sticking around. And then when Russo is brought back uh, here and... Uh, he pitches some more ideas and again, is sort of dismissed. He quits again. It's a pretty interesting name because he's more of a, a rock name. It's the same guy and he's just a big wrestling fan and apparently knew Gary Juster. So he has a cup of coffee in WCW. Did you spend any time with him? I did not. You know, if I've ever met him, it would have been very brief. Um, and as you pointed out, he was gone when I got there. But it was, you know, it was a typical WCW move, a Gary Jester move. Oh, this guy's a big wrestling fan, and he knows rock and roll. So, you know, let's put him on a creative committee. Um, I, I never heard much about him. I knew who he was. I believe he was with a band called Husker Du. I think was it was kind of a punk band from Minneapolis at the time. Um, but I, I knew him by reputation only, and don't really have much to comment on other than that. I, I just knew who he was. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when the changes are announced, Brad Siegel calls a staff meeting at the offices in Smyrna and he basically puts Kevin Sullivan on ice is the report from Dave Meltzer. He says that he's sort of in the same spot Russo had been in where he's under contract for another two years, but sent home, uh, JJ Dillon's going to be in the same position and is at TV tapings, uh, Juster is expected to keep his job, but his power is limited to booking buildings. Terry Taylor, who quit WCW because he was tired of being Eric Bischoff's whipping boy, that according to the Observer, um, returned with Russo, Jeff Jarrett, Ed Ferrara, and Bill Banks in the WWF Exodus in the fall, and they're all expected to stay as well. So are you in this meeting when they announce the changes, or is this meeting held without you? No, it was held without me. Um. Let's talk a little bit about 
that that band of characters there. You know, it's in the Observer who quit WCW because he was tired of being Bischoff's whipping boy. Now we know where that quote would have come from. That means Terry Taylor was calling the Observer. How would you have classified your relationship with Terry Taylor? It's complicated because Terry, my opinion of Terry at the time was he was capable of really contributing a lot. There was a lot of things when it came to creative that I liked about Terry, but his mouth just always got him in trouble. He he had a penchant for saying the absolutely dumbest shit at the worst possible time as anybody that I had ever met. Um, there were other issues that I'm not going to go into um, because it's not really important, but added to the tension between Terry and I, I, I wanted to keep Terry on board because I did value some of his input, but the negatives often outweighed the positives. And that put a lot of stress on a relationship. And I was hard on him, not because I, I liked being hard on him, not because I needed a whipping boy necessarily, um, but because he brought so much of that onto himself with his personal behavior and some of the things that, that the way he conducted himself in a corporate environment uh, and the fact that he just would say the dumbest shit at the worst possible time to the wrong people. Uh, it, it made dealing with him really, really tough. So I, I'm, I'm sure Terry wasn't excited. There were probably a lot of people that weren't excited about me coming back. And I'm sure Terry was at the top of that list. Let's talk about the phone call with Russo. You talked about, you know, you wanted to talk to him before you could commit that you could work with him. Give me the gist of that conversation and then let's follow up and transition right into what you guys talked about, you know, with, Hey, if we're going to work together, here's what we need to do, because it does feel like a bit of a departure to hit the reset button. And that's really what you're going to do on this show. Well, again, you know, not to, to, to retrace this, but the level of chaos and dysfunction, it, it, I, I didn't even realize how bad it was. I knew it was bad before I agreed to come back, but I didn't realize how bad. And when I met with Russo, I didn't want to talk to him over the phone. I wanted to look him in the eye. So I had arranged for him to meet him and I to meet at a restaurant about 30 miles outside of Minneapolis, or excuse me, outside of Atlanta. And we sat down and, and had lunch. And I know it was probably about a two-hour meeting, and we just talked generally, and not specifically about you know what he wanted to do or what I thought should be done. We didn't get into any kind of granular discussion about creative. It was I was just trying to get a sense of him, and and determine whether or not I could trust him because that was my only prerequisite was I had to be able to trust him, and. We talked generally, and you know he shared some of his experiences in WWF, and I listened. I wasn't trying to judge him. I was just trying to read him. So it was a good conversation. Like I said you know, in the beginning of this, Vince could be very charming and disarming when you meet with him. And he did a good job, you know, convincing me that, you know, I could trust him and I could work with him. And I didn't have anything to lose. I had everything to gain. So I thought, well, why not? Why not try to make this work? It's a different situation. Turn broadcasting with WCW was an entirely different company, entirely different structure. Uh, culturally, politically, uh, economically, everything had changed over the course of you know the year before I actually ended up getting sent home and then returning. And I thought, well, as long as I'm not sucked into that you know vortex of chaos and dysfunction, and I'm 
simply, you know, watching over creative. I, I felt it was something that I could do. And like I said, I, I felt good about Vince in the, after that first meeting. And I called Brad back and said, okay, let's, let's make this happen. We finished negotiating my deal and that took a couple of weeks and we're off and running. I've always found Vince to be, and I know a lot of our listeners who don't know him will call bullshit on this, but I think you'll, you'll back it up. I've always found Vince to be a rather engaging and charming guy when he wants to be in your meeting with him. Was he sort of deferring to you about, you know, Hey, I know the great success you had, bro. You were kicking our ass, bro. And if we could work together, bro, I think we could do something great. Is that sort of the gist? I mean, I wasn't there. I'm just freestyling. No, he wasn't trying to put me over my impression immediately when I first sat with him was that he was a little shell-shocked. Um, part of it, I think, was what, what, what he had been through, because evidently, and you, you, know, you know more about it by reading you know, what Meltzer wrote. I'm sure Meltzer knew much more about it than I did uh, at that time. But I think, you know, based on everything that he went through and the fact that you know, he lasted about 60 or 90 days before he had an emotional breakdown and had to go home, um, he was... He was Shell shocked is probably the best way that I could say it. He was he was deferential, you know. He was cordial, deferential, but shell shocked is probably the best word. When did you guys start to discuss the mechanics of, you know, storylines and ins and outs of storytelling? You know, you, you've sort of said that the word you got was that he was too dark and didn't understand storytelling. You guys are going to have a major overhaul here where you actually take a week off of TV and run a clip show and then promote that this is going to be, you know, the next big thing here. And we're going to talk about the show in a minute, but how did we, I mean, whose idea was this a real reset? More mine than anybody's, but I think, you know, Russo was in agreement, obviously. And, and Russo, I think was trying to make it work too. I don't want to constantly beat up on him. You know, he, I think in his mind, he thought, okay, this, this might, he probably felt the same way I did. Because after talking with him for a couple hours, you know, face-to-face, uh, you know, by the end of that two hours or whatever it was, hour and a half, two hours, I was actually kind of excited to work with him. You know, I didn't really have a lot of people that I could collaborate with. And I really like collaborating with people when it comes to creative. Um, it brings out the best in me, and I think ideas are generally end up being better uh, working with a couple people that you, you vibe with than working in a vacuum. So I, I went at it, you know, pretty excited. And I think Rousseau was too. And we immediately, once I called Brad said, okay, let's make this happen. Uh, once we basically agreed to terms, even though the contract wasn't written, uh, we both knew we were going to move forward. I, I immediately reached out to Vince and we started talking about, okay, what do we do? Uh, but the idea of, you know, the restart, and, and the, taking a week off and all that in and, and the hype, because everybody knew, you know, that's another thing. Well, I'm sure we'll get into this as we go, but so much of the problem in WCW was because the public, you know, not only was our, our product, the, the WCW, WCW product had been suffering for quite some time for a lot of reasons. Um, but the public knew about it. You know, there was so much conversation about, morale and, and everywhere you turned, you know, the young guys were complaining about the older guys keeping them down. That was like the running narrative um, surrounding WCW for a long time. 
And recognizing that, I think both Vince and I agreed that, all right, you know, let's take this negative, which is the, the dysfunction and the political stuff and all the, you know, the Dave Meltzers of the world, making sure the world knew about it. Let's turn that negative, if we can, into a positive. And we, I think we both were excited about the idea of, of the new blood, you know, uh, kind of storyline. So I, it, was a, it was a collaboration. It wasn't just my idea. It wasn't just his idea. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of times when guys get a second chance, they go into something like this and they say, I'm not doing things how I used to. Did you have that approach here? Did you think, you know, there are certain things that we are just going to do differently this time? Did, did you, did you have a moment, you know, to sort of reflect on your time working on nitro before and realize, Hey, if this is going to work, we need to avoid X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to do, you know, ABC differently than, than last time. You know, I don't remember thinking that consciously. Um, I did make up my mind, I think for my own well being, <coughs> that I, again, uh, you know, I'll use the term getting sucked into the creative vortex or the, or the corporate vortex. I, you know, that was the only thing that I was really conscious of is not allowing myself to get caught up in that part of the, the business. From a creative point of view, though, it was obvious that we were in a triage mode. It, it wasn't, for me at least, it wasn't, okay, well, we made this mistake last year or we made this mistake six months ago or whatever. Let's not make that mistake again. It was really triage in the sense that okay, here's where we're at. This is what we've got. You know, this is what the general public thinks of WCW. How do we fix that? That was my first and foremost thought, is how do we try to get this thing back on track again? And my thought going into it was, and again, working with somebody, you know, overseeing somebody was a little bit different uh, for me. Um, and I, I wanted to be a little bit more remote in that process and see if I could get whatever Russo had to offer. And I didn't know at this time, you know, I, I didn't buy into the, you know, he was the guy who solely turned WWF around because I had people in WWF that I was still talking to that laughed at that. Um, but I thought, you know what, maybe this guy has some, maybe, maybe there's a fresh look or a fresh approach to this that he sees that I don't. So let's try to make it work. So I don't want to say nurture him, but I, I did want to see if I could get the best out of him and, and see if he could challenge me and get the best out of me. That was really my only conscious thought going into the process. You mentioned, you know, the people you talked to in WWE, but you didn't say a name, you know, it doesn't matter now. Who were you talking to back then? No, I'm, not, I'm still not going to, because some of them are still there. Okay. Got it. So catch me up. Did you have any, any, when you're home, you're sitting home from WCW. Did you have any conversations with guys at the WWE about maybe coming back like there? No. Okay. No, absolutely not. All right. So let's get to it. Let's talk about what we're here. It's April 10th and it's 2000 and the show's mostly remembered for two things. And, and we'll get to the second one in a minute, but the first one that everybody remembers is all the titles are stripped. So all the champions forfeit their titles and new champions will be crowned six days later at the next pay-per-view spring stampede. That's important to the story. So if you were a champion before this day, you're not anymore. And this is the go home show for a pay-per-view spring stampede. Sid vicious had been the world champion for 76 days. Jeff Jarrett had been the U S champion for 84 days. 
the Harris brothers had been the tag champs for 22 days. Brian Knobs had been the tag champ for 22 days. The artist formerly known as Prince Iakea had been the champ for 10 days. Hacksaw Jim Duggan had been the champ for 54 days. He didn't actually win the title. He found it in the trash after the champion Scott Hall threw it in there. So he just proclaimed himself the television champion and it became official. You know, there are some wrestling purists who took great offense to this because they, you know, really respect the lineage of a wrestling championship and the heritage of it. And they celebrate it, even though, you know, we sort of know how wrestling, how the sausage is made. Did you think that you would get any pushback on stripping everybody of the belts? And, and was there a conversation with anybody you recall who was a champion who you had to sort of talk into this or sell the idea to, I mean, obviously they're going to do what they're told. I get that. But on some level, it does feel like some of the guys would have been like, no, wait, what are we doing? Uh, I wasn't worried about any pushback. That was your first question. Um, it was more important again, given the circumstances, you know, we, we, we wanted to convey creatively that this was a new era. And this was a, a new WCW to the best that we could. You know, ideally, you know, looking back, we would have probably taken a month off or two months off to build some of that anticipation and, and buzz and get people wondering, you know, how it was going to be new and different. But we didn't. We rushed it. And that was more of a Brad Siegel decision than mine. I, I wanted more time. Brad didn't for whatever reason. And we went with it. But in terms of the stripping the titles, no, there was no look. There, things were so there was it was in such disarray, and the morale was so low at that time that everybody was kind of frustrated, shell shocked, insecure to a degree, you know. And there wasn't really anybody came to me and said, "Wow, this is this is wrong," or "Why do I have to give up my title?" I don't think the talent really cared. You know what they cared about was keeping their jobs, <laughs> renegotiating their next contract. Uh, you know, I think the talent looked at it pretty much from a selfish point of view and were willing to go along with just about anything that remotely made sense because nothing had been making sense for a couple of months leading up to this. So the show here starts with uh, a bunch of the boys in the ring and several more walking to the ring. And Jeff Jarrett cuts a promo talking about how he left the WWF and he was, he's the chosen one for WCW handpicked to be the next world champion by the powers that be. And the power is Vince McMahon's best kept secret, Vince Russo and Russo comes out to uh, Iron Man, which is, I don't know. It is what it is. And then he starts cutting a promo about how, you know, after giving six years of his life to the WWF, he came to WCW with one thing in mind, and that's to beat Vince McMahon at his own game. And the new blood was helping him do that. But the old school way of thinking here, the good old boys network in WCW, uh, wouldn't allow success. And he even name drops. Benoit, Guerrero, Saturn, Malenko, and Douglas, they all knew that, and that's why they left. And then you came out and said, are you done yet? And I think a lot of people assumed you guys were going to maybe have words, but instead you said, no, we have more in common than you might imagine. And you start running through the mistakes you made with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Sting and DDP and Sid Vicious 
and even Hulk Hogan. And then you start to talk about the new blood and eventually DDP comes out. Let's just take a pause here. This opening segment, you watched it again for the first time in a long time. What'd you think here? You know, I, I, given the circumstances and, and the goals, more importantly, given the goals and the narrative surrounding WCW and all the challenges that the, the company had been having for really a good year, um, I thought it was a pretty effective segment. Um, it, it created the energy and the interest, I think, in what we were about to do. I, I intentionally you know, swerved the audience a little bit and teased a, a confrontation between Russo and I until – you know, we, we hugged or whatever we did in the middle of the ring and, and made it clear that we were, you know, working arm in arm. So I, from a just a purely production point of view, uh, storytelling point of view, I thought it was a decent way to achieve what we were hoping to achieve, which is, okay, this is a, this is a new company, this is a new approach, and we're going to do things differently, and here's how we're going to do it differently. I thought it was pretty effective, actually. One of the things that got a lot of people talking here is when you start running down the different wrestlers and you're insulting DDP as, you know, being sucking down beers in some redneck bar in Florida or whatever, but then you get to Sid and there's a line he slipped here that maybe the live audience didn't catch, but people at home were certainly talking about it. And it was all over the internet where you said something like, uh, do you want to lay me out? And while you're waiting for a response, you said, what's the problem? Can't find your scissors, which is an inside reference to his stabbing incident with Arn Anderson seven, eight years prior. Is that a Russo line? No, that was me. <laughs> that was me. And you know, that was again, and looking back on it now, I definitely I was almost, almost going to say possibly, but definitely I allowed myself to get sucked into the dirt sheet universe a little more than I should have. Um, it was a cute little line. I knew it would, you know, people that knew would know, uh, the vast majority of the audience would know what the fuck I was talking about. Uh, but I did it anyway to, to try to achieve what I thought at the time was the best way to change the narrative and to get people talking again, you know, part of, part of, the formula for success, at least I believed at the time, and I still do to a large degree, is if you don't get people talking about what you're doing, um, the chances are they're not going to be watching it for very long. And I was doing everything that I possibly could just to create the chatter and get people talking about WCW again, get people asking themselves, you know, oh, my God, what's going to happen next week? You know, that was my goal. And, you know, looking back at it now, I, I probably wouldn't do something like that today. But then at that time, given the circumstances, I thought it was a good idea. Given that you guys, you know, and you've talked about this a lot on the show, the standards and practices for Turner are changing. Uh, seemingly, if you believe what we've read over the years, pretty regularly, you know, what, what was acceptable a month ago was not acceptable today. In this promo, Vince Russo calls Ric Flair a piece of shit on the bottom of his shoe. It says he's going to scrape that shit off and flush it down the toilet where he belongs or something like that. But he, I mean, you guys said shit right on TNT. Is that something you run past the network or just hope you can ask forgiveness no, that was, and not that, permission? That was, that was Russo going off reservation. He, 
he, he took that upon it. It was totally inappropriate. And I think it was a perfect example of why Brad Siegel had to pick up the phone and ask me to come back. You know, that was, that, that was Vince Russo. You know, he, his, his creative approach to things, you know, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about all the crazy shit that he did and Scott Hall throwing a title in the trash. And I mean, there's so many things that Russo did. If, if anybody goes back and looks at it, that was just fucking asinine creatively. Um, you know, he called it crash TV. Other people call it hot shotting. There was no rhyme or reason to it. There was no formula to it. There was no structure to it. There was no arc to it. It wasn't leading to or building to anything. That 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 was Vince Russo at that time, and, and that's what Brad recognized, and that's why Brad brought me back to try to create some formula and some structure and some and make some sense out of this. But additionally. You know, standards and practices was a big deal. We've talked about this before. In July of 1998 or August of 1998, I was called into a meeting at Techwood and sat around, you know, in a room full of executives, many of whom I had never met before. I didn't even know. Um, I didn't even know their names, most of them. And they proceeded to tell me how I was going to change, creatively change, the way we were approaching the product and the audience that we wanted to target, which I knew was a mistake. I knew it when I heard it. I challenged it in the most probably unprofessional way one could challenge something in a room full of executives that you don't even know. Um, and I knew it was a mistake. But now fast forward from that August 1998 meeting, which is when the creative you know, standards and practices, and that was the first time I met Terry Tingle. Every time I say her name, I chuckle because she sounds like a stripper. But it's a perfect stripper name. But that's when it started, and then it got progressively more intense and dysfunctional and inconsistent. They were all over the map with it. But, you know, dropping, you know, shit in the, in the middle of a live broadcast on TNT was typical of what Russo thought was a great idea. As you guys go to commercial, we see Hulk Hogan arriving to the arena. And when we come back, uh, Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson, and Mark Madden recap everything that's just happened. And then we cut to Hogan's locker room where we see him taping his wrists. Sting comes in to talk to him, says that you're on to him and says he's not ribbing him, which is interesting that we're now using an, an inside term. You know, it's not that big a deal, I guess, but it does feel like a bit of a departure from the way you had done things before ribbing him. Or, or when you see some of these inside you know, wrestling lingo appear in the show. Are you thinking that, you know, is there any hesitation there or, or is it, Hey, let's just, I mean, cause it is weird because I mean, you, you acknowledge you were a little bit in the dirt sheet universe, but was there a time when you realized, Hey, maybe that's too much. Or are people really going to get that? Is that too inside baseball for the mainstream? Or is it at this point, or, or are you just sort of pushing all your chips in on let's cater to that audience? No, I certainly wasn't pushing all my chips in and catering to the audience, but I was acknowledging that portion of the audience. Yeah, again, looking back, um, not a good idea. Wouldn't do it again. But at that time, again, you know, the the, the narrative surrounding WCW, the challenges that we had were so obvious to so many people that I thought it was appropriate to, to, to throw some of that in. I, I wish we wouldn't have. I think it was a big mistake and what it really you know again looking back at it now a lot of that was the result of not having really good story if you've got really good story and people are hooked on 
the journey, then you don't need that. It's a Band-Aid. It's not a, it's not a remedy. It's just a Band-Aid. And I was willing to, to use the Band-Aid. You know, we were coming out of the shoot with something new. I had hoped that over the course of months, because you can't fix everything overnight. You know, it's not like you can walk in with, a, you know, wipe everything off the chalkboard, grab a piece of fresh chalk and start all over again and instantly be where you want to be. It was a process. And my hope was that by starting off with this, you know, new blood kind of storyline and the angle and, and creating a, a, a battle, if you will, between the, the veteran camp and the new blood camp um, and, and, and interjecting some of the, the inside references, it was my hope that it would give us enough momentum to be able to start figuring out a long-term story arc for a lot of the talent in a, in, a, in a definitive direction, because that's the one thing WCW didn't have. And it wasn't just under Vince Russo. They didn't have it under me either leading up to you know me leaving in September. There was just a lot of chaos. And I thought, okay, let's just get this thing started. Let's definitively have, you know, the new blood versus the veterans, you know, take advantage of the narrative that's out there, try to turn, you know, chicken salad or tr- chicken shit into chicken salad, and then move forward with a more, or structured kind of approach to storytelling. Uh, you guys announced that there's going to be a tournament to crown a new world heavyweight champion for the now vacant championship. Six days from now at Spring Stampede. Match one is going to be a quarterfinal between DDP and Lex Luger. And this is a nice little touch. When these guys come out, their music gets cut off, they don't get pyro. And uh, when they get in the ring, they start to flex and pose. The spotlight is removed, the lights come back on. But during the match, Buff Bagwell makes his entrance, gets all the music, all the pyro, starts talking to Liz. So a fun little deviation here that, that really adds to the storyline. Um, of course, Buff Bagwell distracts Lex Luger. He gets nailed with a diamond cutter and pinned four and a half minutes or so. His music plays for a little bit, and then it gets cut again. And then backstage, we see Hulk Hogan knocking and opening doors, looking for you as we go to commercial. And when we come back from the break... We see Kurt talking to Vince Russo about why he isn't in the tournament. And Russo says if he can beat Jeff Jarrett tonight, he'll take Jeff Jarrett's place in the main event at Spring Stampede. And then more of Hulk Hogan looking for you. But then Tank Abbott's music plays and he comes to the ring and says he doesn't know the difference between a wrist lock and a wrist watch and calls out, calls out Goldberg and um, says he's going to beat up innocent victims until Goldberg finally accepts his challenge. He makes his way over to the announce table and attacks Mark Madden. He rips Mark's shirt off and uh, Tank throws him into the ring and punches him until security breaks it up. I wanted to talk about this segment because this is a segment that Mark Madden has said he didn't want to do and was basically threatened with his job by Vince Russo if he didn't do it. You are friendly with Mark Madden. Obviously, you guys have had a different relationship over the years, but what do you think of this segment where, you know, there's a guy who's, you know, a heavy set guy who probably doesn't want to be on TV without his shirt and he's been, and he's, that's not his place. He's an announcer, but he's asked to do this expresses that he doesn't want to do it. And ultimately is made to do it. And then, you know, he's in an angle with a guy who's not really a pro wrestler and more of an MMA guy, not a good spot for Mark Madden to be in here. What do you remember about this? Uh, I hated it. 
I, I didn't, let me, let me rephrase that. I didn't hate it enough to drop a hammer on it, but I didn't like it. And again, this is going to sound like I'm making excuses, and maybe I am. No, I'm not. I'm just going to be honest about it. My goal was to try to work with Vince, to try to have a good collaborative working relationship. I knew going in, and you've been around me enough, Conrad, you, you know, when I get passionate about something, um, I, can, I can come off a little strong sometimes. It, it's a strength. In, in some cases for me, has been throughout my life. And it's also a liability. And I began recognizing that a while back. And I didn't want to come in. I knew if I came in and hammered Vince right off the bat and shut him down when he had ideas, I, I knew that that collaborative relationship wasn't going to work. It, 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 would, it would burn out really quickly. And Vince, you know, I, by this time I had spent enough time around Vince to realize he's kind of a fragile guy. Um, he, he, he gets, you know, ass-chapped real easily, and he kind of collapses emotionally. And I think, you know, looking back at his career, you know, you can pick a number of times that it happened in TNA, it happened in WCW, it probably happened in WWF, I don't know. Uh, when, when he's under any amount of pressure or you don't agree with something that he wants to do, he, he doesn't take it like a man. He doesn't handle it all that professionally. He, gets, he takes everything really, really personally. And I knew that. I saw it. I, I, I figured it out pretty quickly with him. And I didn't, I didn't drop the hammer on it. I wished I would have. It was the type of thing and the style that Vince Russo liked that wasn't working. But I, I went along with it. I, I didn't stop it. So I, I regret that. It was a horrible position to put Madden in. I'm, you know, I'm, I regret it. You know, there's only a couple things that I've done in wrestling with characters and storytelling that I really regret. And that's one of them. I mean, that, that's not to say that I, you know, I didn't make a bunch of mistakes or poor choices or whatever. That's a different kind of thing. I don't regret those. Those are just, you know, that was, that was life. But when you... Put somebody in a personal situation that is really um, degrading to them on a personal level, and they're not and they're not up for it. You know, I've done a lot of things that were, you know, when I've done a lot of things creatively that were, you know, people can interpret as degrading to me. But I have a different approach to that. It doesn't bother me to do that kind of thing. When May Young, you know, gave me the Bronco Buster. You know, it didn't bother me when I took the stink face from Rikishi. It didn't bother me because I looked at it as, okay, this is storytelling. The audience is going to get a big pop. It's going to be effective. But with a guy like Vince, when you shut him down creatively or, or a guy like Mark Madden, when you're asking him to do something that he's not comfortable doing and he's not that type of performer, I think that's, that's, going, that's crossing the line. And that's one of the things that I do regret. Mark is a good guy. He's controversial. I'm sure he's got a lot of people that think he's great. There's probably a lot of people that think he's not. Um, I happen to think that he was I hired Mark Madden because I knew what I was getting with him, and I wanted it. Uh, I wanted the fact that he was a little bit of a loose cannon and controversial and spoke his mind. I thought that was a good thing. Uh, but to put him in that position, you know, it was very, very regrettable. So let's talk a little bit about, um, the next segment. We see Jeff Jarrett talking to Vince Russo about having to wrestle Kurt Russo assures him everything's okay. And just says, trust me, 
we see Tori Wilson confronting Billy Kidman about what he's about to do. And then we cut to Hulk Hogan asking Terry Taylor where you are. And then we go to commercial and we come back. Hogan's finally found you and you invite him into the office. And then Billy Kidman's music plays. He comes out to cut a promo, talks about how he's been giving a get out of jail free card because he's been held down. And so has the rest of the new blood for many years by the egomaniacs with their fading careers and tonight's his night. And he wants to address the biggest egomaniac of them all Hulk Hogan. And he says for weeks, Hulk Hogan's been bad mouthing him talking about his size and he may not have the body he does, but he's got heart and, um, et cetera, et cetera. He's calling him out. And he says something like, uh, it's time to see if your balls are as big as your bald spot. Hogan hears what Kidman has to say from a monitor backstage and makes his way to the ring to confront Billy Kidman. Of course he hits him with the old, who the hell do you think you are? Um, this is an interesting pivot because for years, the rumor and innuendo in the dirt sheets was that Hogan was a master politician. And always kept the top spot for himself and his buddies and the maybe smaller, more talented in-ring performers like the Eddie Guerrero's and the Crispin was and the Dean Malenko's, they didn't get an opportunity because they weren't, you know, from the land of the giants like Hulk Hogan. When you first heard about this Billy Kidman, Hulk Hogan pairing, whose idea was it? What'd you think? And how did you present it to Terry? Uh, you know, I can't. I'm not sure where the original idea originated. Uh, it was obviously something I supported. Uh, I had no, you know, it's so funny when I hear the, the rumor in any window and people talking about Hogan's politics, and I'm not suggesting that he's not a, he wasn't a, a political person. He was. Most wrestlers were. So was Ric Flair. You know, so was Roddy Piper. So was Randy Savage. Um, the guys at the top learned to be that way. That's how they built their careers. So it was inherent in their nature. And But it, in this particular case, I sat down and talked to Hulk and said, look, this is what we want to do. This is who we want to do it with. And he, he was fine with it. I got no resistance from, from Hulk. He, he wanted to kind of reestablish himself, I guess. He, he, he wanted a little bit of a fresh start, too. And again, he was just as, a well, he was just as aware of the narrative uh, and, and the, the complaints, if you will, that were out there about him and, you know, who he worked with and all that. So he, he wanted to try to fix it. He, he went into it with a really open mind and wanted to contribute. There was no pushback at all on Hulk's part. In this promo, he, he says something like, uh, Kidman, you're always wanting to know when am I going to get the push? So even Hogan is using some insider language here. And eventually this leads to a match. You do a run in with a chair in hand and you actually crack Hulk Hogan over the head. Hogan gets color and you count the pin. Billy Kidman pinned Hulk Hogan here after your chair shot led to a bloody Hulk Hogan. What do you remember about that creative? Um, pretty much my idea with Hulk, you know, that was the, that finish was Hulk's finish. Not mine, not Russo's. That was all Hulk. And the only thing I remember about it, you know, specifically being in the ring was that I really was not comfortable hitting anybody with a chair, you know, and, and that may sound funny to some And it's, 
it's odd as it may sound, um, I don't like hitting people unless properly motivated. Then I then I thoroughly enjoy it. But that's outside of business. That's outside of the regular. I should say, used to be. I'm not that way anymore. But when it came to making contact with people, um, and, and you know, I had this problem even in WWE. I, I and then when Hulk said, "No, bro, you got to hit me with this chair." You know, I mean, you got to really lay it in there. That was all him. I really didn't want to do that. Not because I was friends with Hulk, or not. Not that wasn't the reason why I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because I was insecure in my ability to do it and make it look good without doing some serious damage. I was really uncomfortable with that, but that was that's what he wanted. Right, we go uh, backstage and we see Ric Flair pulling up in a limo, and uh, then we go to commercial. And when we come back, Hulk Hogan is going nuts backstage, throwing everything and actually cursing quite a bit, which feels like something you guys would have discussed before. He's pretty old school. And then we cut to Ric Flair, who's watching some of the things that happened earlier in the show. He comes out and talks and, uh, talks about, of course, Vince Russo. And, you know, he's referencing a lot of the, uh, sports athletes and, you know, how they don't put up with this type of stuff. And he's even mentioning his real attorney and saying, you know, how much he spent fighting you. And then Scott Steiner comes out. And of course, Scott Steiner for years had been cutting promos on Ric Flair, you know, here and there just for no reason, not for storyline. And so now the natural pairing is if we're going to sort of blur the lines and maybe cater to a smart audience. Well, here's one Scott Steiner is here and he says, Ric Flair, you old bastard. I'm listening even to the back on the monitor. And quite frankly, you're boring me to death. The last time I came out here and did anything on you, you obviously listened because you gritted your teeth and they're still crooked as hell. And after I did that interview, you and your old bastard friends tried to get me fired, but that didn't surprise me none. Because if you look at the WWF now and see who's champion up there, with the exception of one person, they've all come from here, except you and your old bastard friends ran them out. So you could be a 14 time world champion. That don't mean shit to me. The fat ass in the front row with no teeth could be a 14 time world champion. If he had all his friends pulling the strings, what'd you think of that? You know, I mean. You're openly referencing the competition or cursing again. We're sort of uh, tongue in cheek that, you know, Hey, this is all the work major departure here. And one that I don't know, I wouldn't have imagined that you had anything to do with, but clearly you did. No, I did. And, you know, I'm going to draw a parallel here. that is a little bit unfair, but if you look at some of the recent things that WWE has done, for example, with Becky Lynch and Ronda and Charlotte to a degree, the, the type of dialogue that's taking place in social media is along the same lines. Now, this was exaggerated. It was probably rougher around the edges. And yes, it was on TV, not social media. Social media didn't exist back then. But the psychology is the same. It's put as, put as sharp of an edge as you possibly can on what you're doing to the point where it feels dangerous. And you said, you know, it was a departure. Yes, it was a departure. Everything that I had done that was successful was also a departure from what had previously been done. So departing from the norm or departing from, a, you know, the, the tried and true formula was nothing I was afraid of. 
referencing WWF was certainly nothing that bothered me. Fuck, I've been giving away their finishes on Nitro. <laughs> you know, it was, and calling out Vince McMahon. So, you know, acknowledging the competition was really not a departure for me. Um, but the edge that Stein, I thought it was, you know, look, from a production point of view, it was a pretty solid promo. It achieved its goal. It reinforced the story that we were trying to tell. It reinforced the strategy of old guys, young guys. You know, Scott was somewhere in the, in the middle of that, obviously, but he was taking the young guy's side, obviously. But, but it reinforced the overall, you know, creative strategy that we were launching with. I guess I should mention, you know, we talked about the Scott Steiner, Ric Flair thing for years and years. Shane Douglas had been cutting promos in ECW on Ric Flair. So towards the end of this promo, Shane Douglas, uh, appears out of nowhere, knocks Flair down with one punch and, uh, Steiner is still bad mouthing Flair here. So we're off to the races. Then we cut backstage and we see Kevin Nash on crutches arriving. I'm starting to see a formula here. You know, it feels like every time we're going to commercial, Somebody new was coming to the building two hours late. Is this a crutch that, that Russo used too often, or was this somebody else in the, in the writing committee? Um, I guess looking back, one could criticize that, that formula. I, I don't have a problem with it. You know, when you have a two hour show, you're going to commercial breaks you know, getting people, conditioning people to want to sit through a commercial break because something exciting is going to happen, something new is going to happen, something unpredictable is likely to happen. Those are not formulas that I, I could even today find fault with. Now, how you do them and how you execute them and how often you do that and how you vary that formula up so it doesn't feel repetitive and redundant, you know, is the key to making that work. But the basic approach is not one that I would even today have a problem with. When you're, when you're challenged with holding an audience, particularly when you're going head-to-head against somebody who's basically producing the same kind of show, you've, you've got a, you know, every trick you can possibly find, you know, every rabbit you can find in any hat possible, you're going to want to pull it uh, to hold that audience. So you probably went to it too often. Logic would suggest, well, why are these people all showing up late? There's a lot of holes in the approach, I guess. But again, from a you know audience retention perspective, I don't think it's as bad of an idea as it probably got credit for. We see uh, Bret Hart sitting in the crowd. Doesn't seem like anybody really notices. And then 54 minutes in, we get to our second match, uh, also a part of the world title tournament. This time it's Sting and Sid Vicious. Sting gets a win in six minutes and 17 seconds by count out. During the match, the referee's knocked down, which allows the wall to run in and hit Sid in the back with a chair after Sid had just powerbombed Sting. Then the wall chokeslams Sid through a table on the outside, and that causes him to get counted out. So it's DDP versus Sting against the winner of Jeff Jarrett and Kurt Henning for the world title in the main event of Spring Stampede. And then Flair enters the ring and challenges Shane Douglas to a match later tonight. And we cut backstage and Hogan's still on a rampage, throwing a box of ice at the camera. And after commercial, we see Hogan asking people where you are and uh, he's throwing them into a fence. 
And then Tony talks about the premiere of Ready to Rumble at Man's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, this is pretty, what a time for WCW. At this premiere, David Arquette hit Jeff Jarrett over the head with a guitar uh, because Jarrett had said he was going to crash the premiere. Match three is a World Heavyweight Championship semifinal with Jeff Jarrett and Kurt Henning. Uh, Jeff gets the win in four and a half minutes. Another ref bump. Ref goes down, and that caused Sean Stasiak to come out using Kurt's old music. Scott Hudson tells us that Stasiak used to be meat in the WWF. And Stasiak attacks Kurt, hits him with a move, and then Jarrett uses the stroke for the three. What do you think of, um, you know, in the middle of all this, you've also got to promote the movie, Ready to Rumble. What a time in WCW, is it not? It really was. And <clears throat> Ready to Rumble was a Time Warner movie. Warner Brothers, actually, which was Time Warner. And it was actually a movie that the, the whole process was something I initiated months before I got let go. Um, that, that process started between myself and a producer at the time by the name of Leonardo Di Bonaventura, who today is probably one of the top producers. I think he's still with Warner Brothers, and he's gone on to make some fantastic movies, and he's built an amazing career. But I actually started that process, was scheduled to play myself in the movie, got sent home, and now as I come back, one of the first things we have to do is promote the movie that I originally um, launched and, and got started. So yeah, it was, it was weird. It was out of place, but again, you know, again, you have to kind of take a corporate perspective, not just a wrestling perspective, you know, corporately, this was a movie that probably had, Oh, I'm guessing, I don't know. I wasn't involved in the finance side of it, but I'm guessing at that time it was probably a 50 to $60 million movie, which at that time was a pretty substantial movie, um, a pretty substantial budget. And, we were obligated to promote it, and we did. As, as awkward as it may have felt or out of place as it may have felt in some respects, uh, it was our corporate duty to promote our you – know, they were the, – Warner Brothers, or Time Warner was, was – you know, it wasn't a merger. They took us over. So when the, when the edict came down to promote that movie, we had to do it the best we could. The movie debuted on April 5th. This show, of course, is on April 10th. So it's five days old. Brian Robbins was the director. Uh, the budget for the movie was 24 million. And uh, Whoa. at the box, Whoa. at the box office, it did 12 and a half. So it, like everything, WCW was losing money in 2000. Um, Hulk Hogan is looking all over for, for you. And, uh, he's even going in the sky boxes in the arena, asking fans where you are. Rick Flair is backstage prepping for his match with Shane Douglas and Kevin Nash is on the phone to someone and we get a uh, promo with me Gene and sting match four is Rick Flair versus Shane Douglas. Both of the guys, oddly enough, wrestle in street clothes, but it's not a street fight. Rick Flair gets the win by DQ after three minutes when Vince Russo hit Rick Flair with a baseball bat. And after the match, Shane Douglas attacks Flair with Russo's bat while Russo steals Flair's Rolex. Then he leaves with Douglas. Uh, what'd you think of Vince Russo inserting himself into a storyline, using a baseball bat, stealing Ric Flair's Rolex? You know, the, over the years, people have been very critical when the guy sort of calling the shots 
puts himself on camera. I think the first time, you know, a lot of people who are, are quote unquote dirt sheet readers started to hear about that. That's when dusty Rhodes was the booker of Jim Crockett promotions, but he would put himself in the main event and sometimes he would win and people would not respond kindly to that and say, that's not something you should do. And then of course, Vince Russo famously is going to make himself the world champion and et cetera, et cetera. And you were a part of that as well, where you became, you know, the turncoat for WCW when you joined the NWO. So I guess it maybe is a little harder for you to be critical of this or was it, what'd you think of Vince Russo attacking Ric Flair with a baseball bat and stealing his watch? Interesting question. And and an interesting point. Um, it wasn't unprecedented for someone who was calling the shots to put themselves in the main event. Dusty Rhodes is one example. Uh, Vergania was another example. I'm sure there are many others. Wrestling historians that are listening to this can probably give you a long list or at least a short list of others who have done it. Uh, keep in mind, you know, I had been a television you know, personality, at least, or character, if you will, since 1989. Um, I came to WCW as an on-air talent. Um, and when Nitro launched, I was, you know, one of the play-by-play people and had that position on camera. When I became president of the company, everybody knew I was president of the company, but I had also been on camera for years. So I think there's a subtle difference between, not a subtle difference, I think there's a significant difference between what I did and what Russo did. Nobody knew who Russo was. He had spent very, very little time on camera. He may have had a couple, you know, small segments in WWF, you know, talking about the magazine and shit like that. But he was not a character or a personality that people really knew. And I think, in you know, him to throw himself in, and for me not to, by the way, stop it. I, I bear as much responsibility for this as Russo does. Uh, but there is a big difference between a guy that nobody really knows or, or acknowledges as a character, at least a meaningful one, um, to in, in, interject himself and put himself in there as much as we did. I say we um, was a huge mistake. You know, Vince got a, in, you know, to this day, and he's got a huge case of, you know, I need to be on camp. Probably not to this day because I, I think he recognizes that time, like I do, is, is long past him. But at this time, he desperately wanted to be on camera. He desperately wanted to be a character. Now, he would, you know, he would privately, and this is where, you know, where the charm and the bullshit comes in. You know, he would seemingly be reluctant to do it. But at the same time, would do it at every single opportunity he could in some of the highest profile situations he could. And I know there are going to be, you know, my critics out there, and I know there's plenty of them, um, are, are going to, you know, yeah, yeah, but you did that. Well, again, I did that, but the situation was quite a bit different. The circumstances, at least, were quite a bit different when I did it. So it was a mistake. It was Vince trying to be Vince McMahon, who, by the way, was calling the shots and put himself in, you know, on TV quite a bit creatively, uh, following my lead, I might add. But for Vince to do it as much as he did was a, was a huge mistake. And he just had, he had a real, I need to be on camera disease. He couldn't, he couldn't help himself. Let's talk about the next segment here. Kevin Nash makes his way to the ring on crutches. He says he's got a broken ankle, uh, ankle, and, uh, he's calling you and, uh, Russo, a couple of jack offs who were trying to, 
uh, ruin everyone's career, play God with their career, and then play wrestler. And he wouldn't be doing that if Scott Hall were here. But he got off the phone with Scott, and Scott's clean, Scott's sober, and Scott's pissed off because neither one of you guys, Russo and Bischoff, would be here if it weren't for them. Uh, Russo would have been decapitated by Shawn Michaels had Scott and Kevin not saved him in the WWF. And you would still be working for Vern Gagne in Minnesota, getting him coffee. Uh, but they came down and, and saved WCW with the NWO. And then all of a sudden, Mike Awesome comes in the ring and attacks Kevin Nash with crutches. And this is one of the more interesting things that happens on the show. Mike Awesome is the current ECW world champion, and Tony Schiavone even points that out. And before Awesome talks, he flips off a fan and then says something like, when I heard Bischoff and Russo were back in the saddle here in WCW, I knew it was too sweet of an opportunity to pass up. And the fans start to chant asshole at him. This is a a big moment on the show, and I know you're probably going to debate that, but it is really strange and unique and interesting to have an ECW contracted wrestler, the world champion, in fact, for that promotion, appear on nitro. And of course, Meltzer would write all about it. Um, before we talk about what Meltzer discussed here, chat me up. How in the world did this come to be? And is the rumor in innuendo correct that all day you guys were back and forth with Paul Heyman negotiating how to make this deal happen because Heyman believed he had a contract. Chat me up. He didn't have a contract. You know, Mike, first of all, Mike Austin came to us. We didn't go to Mike Austin. Mike Austin came to us like so many people who did from WC or from ECW because he had issues with getting paid and, and honesty and, and transparency surrounding that issue and couldn't take it anymore. Uh, the, whether or not he had a verbal agreement with Paul or, Paul had signed the agreement, but Mike Lawson hadn't. There was a lot of back and forth over that. I wasn't directly involved with it. That would have been a Nick, you know, Nick Lambros kind of situation or whoever, you know, maybe a Diana Myers situation. Uh, I think Diana Myers at the time was taking over a lot of that stuff. So there was, there was some confusion, as there often is, with contractual issues. There's no doubt about that. I did try to work with Paul and, you know, to try to find a solution if there was one other than a legal one. So, there, yeah, there, there was some confusion. There was some dialogue. I think it's been blown way out of proportion. I think if anybody that's ever worked with Paul Heyman in ECW is going to be really honest with you, they've all had those types of problems in the past. The check was always in the mail. The contract's always going to be sent next week. Um, but there wasn't a contract. And we didn't go to Mike. Mike came to us. I do want to mention that, um, there is a little bit of heat on Mike awesome because he no showed, uh, ECW shows that weekend. And the first one, uh, he just missed the flight or so he said, and it was sort of forgiven because he had never missed a show before the next day. Uh, people believe that the flight was delayed and he was in touch with Jeff Jones, uh, a great friend of the show. And Jeff Jones told the locker room, Hey, he's landed. He's on his way. He's just going to be late. He never actually appears though. But he does pop up on Nitro, and I think Bubba the Love Sponge actually talked about it on the show, saying that WCW had made him an offer and he was going to be appearing. 
and all the rumors start to get going. And then apparently there's some back and forth about who does have a contract or who doesn't have a contract. And in the end, Heyman tries to put all the heat on Mike awesome for being unprofessional and not making his weekend appearances and not returning the ECW to drop the belt. Now, of course we know a compromise is going to be made in Indianapolis. We'll talk about that in a minute, but rather than drop the belt before he appeared on nitro, he just appeared on nitro. And, uh, on April 8th in Buffalo at the TNN tapings, Heyman is showing off what looks to be a three-year contract for just over $600,000 and, uh, saying that, Hey, this is what, this is what he signed. Talk to me a little bit about, in your opinion, if you cared, because you've, you've said before, Hey, I wanted Bret Hart. I didn't care if he had the belt. Is it kind of cool since you're embracing this new Hey, we're shooting brother. Hey, this is not a rib brother. Oh, you want the push since we're talking inside, does the idea of having the ECW world champion appeal to you? I'm only pausing because I'm trying to reflect back at what my thinking most likely was it, it obviously it wasn't a big deal to me or I'd have a much clearer recollection of it. I would say, I feel comfortable saying it really didn't matter to me. I was never, you know, I certainly wasn't. And I remember having the conversation with Bret Hart about not needing the belt. And I felt pretty much the same way here. And the other thing that was, I think, more germane to the issue is that we had already gone through a ton of litigation with WWF regarding belts and trademarks and likenesses and things being confusingly similar and all kinds of Harvard MBA legal kind of shit. So we didn't need it. And even if we felt we wanted it, it would have, I would have been, we would have been hammered by legal. So it was just never anything more than probably a passing thought at best or, or, something that was said in jest because we knew it was never going to happen. Even if we wanted it to happen, Turner legal would have just been up our ass with a flamethrower. It just wasn't going to, it just wasn't that important. So allegedly, uh, the, the story is he was presented a contract. He never actually signed it. Uh, but Heyman says, no, he did. Uh, the rumor and innuendo over the years is Heyman just forged the signature and Mike awesome himself never signed it. I'm not going to say that Jeff Jones told me that, but somebody did. I do want to ask about the compromise that's made. It's reported in the observer that the compromise is, you know, they even tried the day before to get a restraining order to keep Mike awesome from appearing on the show. That doesn't work, but it says temporarily you guys may be second guessed having him appear because of everything you just laid out. So this compromise is WCW would pay quote, a figure reported in the low six figures to give Alfonso a release from his deal. And in return, he would not bring the ECW belt on television would appear in street clothes to do his angle with Kevin Nash and WCW would allow him to wrestle in Indianapolis on April 13th to drop the title in the ring. Do you remember such a compromise where you guys wrote a check? No belt on TV, no. street clothes, any of no. that. No. Is that all? No. Is that all? Um, Heyman feeding that to Meltzer to save face. 
in your opinion? You know, I just know that it wasn't true. So you know, what Paul's motivations were or what he did, um, I, you know, I can't speak to it. Um, I don't know. It was not unlike Paul to pull that kind of stuff. You know, and I, it's, it's funny. You know, I, I, there's probably not a lot of people that I have more respect for in the business today than Paul Heyman in, in many respects. Uh, but at that time, if you go back and look at the way he was conducting business, again, across the board. And here's, what, here's one of the reasons I, I respect Paul. This is one of the smaller reasons. But, you know, he had a, he had a unique he – was, he was like a savant in the sense that he could, you know, not pay people, lie to their face. And they knew that he was lying to their face. And they still would, you know, go through hell and back for him. He inspired that kind of loyalty. And it's one of the things that helped make him so successful. It's one of the things that made ECW successful uh, because his own company kind of personified his, him. It, it was reflection of who he was. And just like he was able to convince people to, you know, go out there and perform and risk their lives and do crazy shit to themselves. And oh, by the way, the checks in the mail, <laughs> um, you know, he would do whatever it took to, to, get himself over or get his company over or save face, as you put it. I think it's all one and the same. Um, but, I, you know, in, in terms of what his motivations were, who he talked to, I, I don't know. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. I, I do want to put a bow on this. How in the world do you guys allow Mike Awesome to appear at the Indianapolis show uh, for, the, for ECW to drop the belt? And when did you know that he would be dropping it to a WWF performer, Taz, not an ECW wrestler? Because this is like the weirdest story ever, that a WCW wrestler wrestles a WWE wrestler for the ECW title at an ECW show. It, it was just something that we worked out with Paul. I didn't really care. You know, I know it, and I know that sounds strange to people, but. Again, it sounds like I'm taking a shot at ECW, and I don't mean it to sound this way. By this time, they were on what you know, eventually became the Paramount Network, and previously was the Spike Network, and previous to that was the Nashville Network. But their footprint, the size of their audience was still relatively small. I didn't feel like in the long run it was really going to matter all that much, and it was just something that we worked out with Paul. You know, so that we could not be going back and forth and spending time, you know, with attorneys. There was a lot of time spent with Turner attorneys trying to figure this situation out. And it was quite honestly, I was just tired of it. And it, it just, it didn't have a long-term implication to me. It was weird as fuck, no doubt about it. Um, it didn't matter to me whether he lost to a WWE guy or an ECW guy or anybody. You know, he was going there to perform. He was going to, we're going to wrap this thing up, put a bow on it, get out of this mess and move on. And that's kind of the way I looked at it. None of the rest of it really mattered to me. Next up, we see Hulk Hogan on the phone in his limo and he says, he's going to eat your ass. And then, uh, well, that doesn't sound appealing at all. We see the camera and slam the door and then, uh, or he sees the camera and slams the door. And just then a white Hummer smashes in to Hulk Hogan's limo. You get out of the driver's seat and you're joined by Billy Kidman, who was riding shotgun. Uh, and then after commercial, we see Billy Kidman riding NB on Hulk Hogan's chest. And he says he should get it tattooed. And of course, NB is for new blood. 
What do you remember about this limo uh, Hummer incident? This feels very WWF. Uh, well, I take exception to that. You know, we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago the uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash running the Steiners off the road. You know, we had done this type of thing before. It wasn't, I guess we hadn't used a Hummer, but it wasn't, in fact, we did monster trucks, we did motorcycles, we did all kinds of crazy, stupid shit long before the WWE did. So I, I take exception to suggesting that we were copying something that we originally kind of started in our formats. Um, but, you know, it, it's funny how this segment in particular has has its own legacy. I mean, to this day, I get people, you know, in social media asking me, who's driving the white Hummer? And the truth is, I don't even know. It was probably Ellis Edwards. You know, it, it, who was driving it wasn't as important as what happened after the Hummer crashed into Hogan's limo when he got spray painted with the, with the, with the new blood tag. That was what that segment was supposed to do. It was supposed to help get Billy over. Uh, it wasn't the, 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 the mystery surrounding the driver was never a part of the equation, but it lives on to this day. I'm sure after this show drops, I'll spend most of Monday trying to answer this question in social media. <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. I've gotten pretty good at it. It's been happening now for about 23 years. Not quite that long. This is 2000, so 19 years. Next up, we see the uh, heavyweight championship semifinal between Diamond Dallas Page and Sting. Page gets all his music and pyro this time, and before the match starts, Jeff Jarrett's music hits. He goes to the commentary table and joins Tony and Scott. More interference as Jeff Jarrett goes after Kimberly, which distracts Page. The referee goes after Page to get him back in the ring, which causes Sting to be attacked by Vampiro. Vampiro hits the nail in the coffin and leaves. Page hits the diamond cutter and gets the win in just under four minutes. So the main event at Spring Stampede will be Jeff Jarrett versus DDP for the world title. And after the match, Jarrett goes to hit Page with the guitar, but Page ducks out of the way. And Jarrett ends up hitting Kimberly with the guitar. And we go to commercial and we get a recap of Jeff Jarrett hitting Kimberly with the guitar. And we see Diamond Dallas Page carrying Kimberly to the back. And then we see Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo, and yourself, who are all smiles. And Jarrett comes back out to the ring and says, that's right, six days and counting until the chosen one realizes his destiny. And um, he has to get this line in. And Paige, this Sunday, if you want to bring your wife back along, there's going to be a real man in the ring who can show her some more wood. What the fuck, Eric? Yeah, that was, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. You know, it. first of all, the, the idea of Jeff hitting Kimberly with the guitar, even by, you know, the standards that existed back in 2000, I think it's over the top. It's it's shock value for shock value's sake. And yes, it would have, you know, the idea was to put heat on Jeff, you know, to get sympathy on, on Kimberly and indirectly on Paige, you know, to properly motivate him. You know, what's he going to do when he gets Jeff Jarrett in the ring now that Jeff Jarrett has assaulted his wife? The line about the wood is a typical Vince Russo kind of thing or was at that time. Um, regrettable. Not cool. 
should have never happened. Um, I don't know what else to say. Next time you see me, you can get me the balls if you want. It's, uh, we're not done. Let's tell you about the last segment. Oh, shit. I thought we were done. DDP's music hits. He charges the ring to attack Jarrett. Then Scott Steiner runs out to attack Paige. Lex Luger runs out and attacks Jarrett. Steiner and Bagwell um, are also involved here. Uh, the Wall and Vampiro come out. They're attacking Luger and Paige. Sting runs out and tries to clean house, but is cut off by Booker T and Ernest Miller. So the New Blood beat up Sting, Paige, and Luger and stand tall as you and Vince Russo come out and shake each other's hands and are grinning from ear to ear. And just then, Bret Hart appears from behind you guys, and Nitro fades to black. Do you remember um, the ending of this show? I mean, you saw it for the first time in a long time. What did you think? Not a bad finish to a show. I mean, I look, I, I liked, and still would to this day. Now, I, I would go about it differently. I wouldn't do the same thing. Um, and I would probably architect it to be a lot more interesting but the idea of ending a show on that kind of chaos and heat again keep in mind what the goal was for the show what the goal was for the next two three four months at this time was to firmly establish the young guys and the old guys right that was the that was the premise it wasn't any more complicated than that take the individual personalities out of it they're interchangeable to a certain degree the idea was let's create a storyline with the new blood, with these these veterans, and this segment established that you clearly knew who was on whose side. You know, you didn't have to look at you know the date on the driver's license to figure out which side somebody was going to be on. It was manifesting in front of you creatively. So this finish to this show, but you know, achieved a couple things. It left us, you know, we left the air on a real high note, which we typically, if you go back and look at a lot of nitros. Some of the best nitros we ever did ended up that way. We would go, go off the air in some kind of intense, chaotic, you know, beatdown scene uh, as often as we possibly could because it, it worked. Uh, as opposed to you know going off the air with a three count in the middle of the ring. Let's do a quick uh, interview with me, Gene Oakland. Okay, we'll see you next week. Let's talk about how it worked. You know, obviously everybody has their opinion on this show. There's so much that happened on this show. The, the Hulk Hogan lost to Billy Kidman, you know, stripping all the champions of the belts, um, the attack on Mark Madden, Mike awesome, making a debut, you know, we're getting the Vince Russo, Shane Douglas, Rick Flair thinking there's just a lot. And then of course the Hummer attack that for whatever reasons, people are fascinated about busting your balls about, and I'm sure Bixen's fan is uh, really mad that you still don't have the answer to that. The rating comes in and nitro gets a 3.06. Uh, that's the average. Of course, the first hour was 3.58. The second hour fell to a 2.64, but then the rating comes in for raw and it gets a 5.68 for the first hour and a 6.61 for the second hour. So interest in, as the show goes on in nitro certainly falls. It rises for raw. The final rating nitro 3.06, uh, raw 6.17. Do you remember if you get back in your way back machine, how you felt when the rating comes in is that, I mean, obviously you guys didn't expect to win, uh, but you certainly expected to, you know, do a little better 
were you pleased with this rating or do you recall? I wasn't pleased and I wasn't disappointed. <clears throat> I mean, we all knew Brad Siegel and I had talked about it. It wasn't like I was going to come in, wipe the slate clean, have a fresh start and be right back in the saddle again. It was going to be a long-term process. It, we knew, I knew at least going in, it may take us a year or more to, to, to regain some of our footing. At that point, and again, keep in mind where WWE was at that point and the, thing, the crazy shit that they were doing and the fact that so many of our uh, – the, the audience that we previously owned um, in 96, 97, 98, <clears throat> that 18 to 34-year-old demo, maybe even 25 to 54 demo, which is you know, a key demo for advertisers – that audience left us, and they went to the WWE. And the WWE did a great job of satisfying them with the type of content the WWE was doing at the time. Now, I don't know what their show was. I, I haven't gone back and looked at that. But they, they were on a massive roll. And nobody, you know, Brad Siegel, myself, I don't know what this Russo thought, but uh, clearly my conversations with Brad, even going back to when I decided to come back, I made that really clear. You know, I didn't want to go back if I didn't understand or agree with their expectations. If the expectations of Brett Siegel and the executives at Turner Broadcasting was that by me coming back, we were going to immediately start regaining ground, I would have never done it for any amount of money because you're just setting yourself up for failure. So I didn't, you know, I know I talked a lot about ratings, you know, and, and you know, pounded my chest from when we were winning, but I knew you know, given the circumstances, it would take us at least a year to to regain to regain some of the ground that we had given up to to WWE. When you watch this show back for the first time in 19 years, nearly 20 years later, you probably are able to see it and appreciate it in a different way than you could when you were in the weeds at the time. What'd you like? What didn't you like? Again, I'm looking at it from the context of where we were, what we were trying to accomplish, what we were trying to overcome, and how we utilized the talent that we had at the time. And honestly, two things come to mind when I watch this show. There was too much. You know, sometimes you can have so much going on that none of it really sinks in. When people start talking about the show the next day, hopefully if they're going to talk about the show the next day, if there's just too much to talk about, it, it's, it, I guess it's like going out you know, to dinner and just eating too much food. No matter how great the food is, if you eat too much of it and you're uncomfortable, uh, it's not a memorable occasion. You don't look back at it fondly. If, if you eat so much, you make yourself uncomfortable. And I think looking at the show, you know, I, clearly I understood what the goal was. Again, looking at it from a perspective almost 20 years later, having produced a lot more television and, and other things, um, it was just too much. I think we would have been better served to focus on, you know, an A story and a B story um, and, and not cram so much in. It was still too chaotic. I don't think the audience left this show at least I didn't when I watched it back. I didn't leave the show feeling like, wow, I can't wait to see how this angle turns out. You know, there was nothing there was nothing in this show that stood out so strongly that it was compelling uh, 
enough to make me want to go back and see what happened the following week. There was a lot of great stuff in the show. You know, I mean, I think, you know, as you, as you isolate each one of those segments, as we just did, and, you know, I go back and look at it or, you know, listen to you reflect back on it. There's a lot of good stuff here. You know, I think the idea of, of the new blood versus the veterans was a great idea because the, the veterans got the sympathy. And despite what a lot of people thought at the time and the, the prevailing narrative at the time started largely by WWE going all the way back to, you know, making fun of, you know, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan and, you know, they're too old, you know, the audience doesn't care about them anymore. That had been, you know, a branding mission for the WWF for years ahead of this, right? So the idea we were trying to embrace was to take advantage of that. Those guys were still big draws. Ric Flair is still a big draw. Hulk Hogan was still a big draw. People recognized them. They had built loyalty for decades, in some cases, with the audience. There was still a tremendous amount of value there, but we had to make them baby faces. We had to get sympathy on them. The new blood had to be the heels. That was the goal. And I think, you know, knowing that goal, as I did then and as I do now watching it back and listening to you talk about it, I think we checked that box. You know, that's one of the things that I think the show was successful in doing is clearly establishing, you know, the, 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 the battle lines and, and getting sympathy on the veterans, which is what we were trying to accomplish. So I, I'm not unhappy with the show. Unlike some of the shows that you, you asked me to, to do with you, some of them I go into it for days going, oh, I'm going to dread this. Oh, he's going to beat my ass. Oh, I'm going to be embarrassed. You know, I do have those feelings to this day uh, because my fingerprints are on it. But this is not one of those shows. You know, again, I keep it sounds like I'm making an excuse and I'm not. But to really break this down and to really put yourself in this moment into April 10th, 2000, you have to understand what the circumstances were and what the goals were. And I think aside from the fact that we crammed too much in, aside from the fact that I cringe at some of the language and, and the inside references that I think were obviously a mistake in hindsight. Um, the overall, the format of the show, the mission of the show, what we were hoping to establish and, and move forward from, I think we did a pretty good job, and the show was relatively entertaining. Well, hopefully you guys were entertained by this show. We got in our Wayback Machine and checked it out. Uh, if you haven't seen this show, we actually decided to do a double header with it this week. So join Tony Schiavone and myself later this week on what happened when, where we're actually going to watch this and do a watch along and we'll learn about some of the things that Tony remembers about this show. You can also probably check us out on Patreon, uh, over the next week or so we'll have Eric answer some of your questions about this show. So if you've always wanted to pick his brain and beat him up about this Hummer situation, then do that over at patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks. As always, we appreciate you checking us out here. Hit the subscribe button. Tell a friend. We appreciate you supporting the show. Somehow it gets bigger and bigger every single month, and we appreciate all of your support. And we would love to have your interaction. He is at E. Bischoff on Twitter. He's very active, and uh, we'd love to hear your suggestions about what you'd like for us to cover in the future. Of course, I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.